Well, this is a topic dear to my heart, leadership, and not only because professionally I hold the title of leader, that was unexpected frosting on the cake after years of interest in the topic. As a young woman, I was active in community organizations and social change and politics and a congregation, in addition to working my way up the corporate ladder in the work world. My keen interest in most of those activities was how people as individuals learn and grow and develop. And in particular, I was interested in how belonging to groups, interacting with other people over time and for shared goals, influences the growth of people. I'd also experienced life in my childhood at a 20th century settlement house close to my own neighborhood. My mother worked there as a group worker. So perhaps through my very early years, it came to me to pay attention to the interactive effects of people and groups. Well, I noticed that in whatever group I was in, whatever organization, there were certain commonalities in how people interacted and how the group affected them and how they affected the group. We are, after all, people in whatever settings we're in. We influence the setting as people probably more so than the setting influences our behavior. And so I embarked on a journey I'm still on to understand how people behave in groups, how groups affect people, and how people grow and change, flourishing in groups. And because leadership develops naturally in every human group, I also became interested in leadership as a topic. How does leadership affect a group and the people in it? What kinds of leadership are effective at bringing out the best in the group and the people in the group so that they all flourish? Well, I was raised, you may know, as a Unitarian humanist, and so was my mother. I grew into the combined Unitarian Universalism and learned there to see one of the ways in which people develop and grow and how through groups and interactions we aid in the growth and development of other precious human beings. And I learned to take that as my source of spirituality. It's not surprising that when I discovered ethical culture, I was really hooked, because ethical humanism has as its core a model of people developing lifelong through our relationships. Well, in my earlier life, first I got a degree in business management. I may be the only ethical culture leader today who has a degree in business management. Um, At a Catholic women's college, to boot, Um, The official title of the program I was in um, was called Women in Management. So it's probably not surprising that we often took on issues around privilege and power and that the focus was on how management can empower people rather than on management as control over processes and tasks and materials. Those, the people versus materials schools are really the two main branches of thought in management theory. Well, when I was in my mid-30s, still a UU and not having yet discovered ethical culture, I decided to go to seminary and become a humanist minister. I attended at first part-time because I was also tending to my family, volunteering actively at my congregation, active in local politics, and working full-time at a Fortune 500 company, heading up their corporate training department in the information services division. Well, I thought then and still believe that lay leadership within congregations is so important 
that I would love to spend my life focused on developing lay leadership. And I saw that as my mission as a minister and later leader of congregations. So four quick stories. First one, I was asked years ago to design a program to develop lay leadership skills in a congregation. At the first session of a six-session course, I asked the participants, so who among you are leaders in this congregation? To people attending a leadership skills program, nobody raised their hands. When I asked how come, to a person they said some version of leadership is a bad thing. We're all equals here. Second story. Back when I was a lay leader in a congregation, I served on the board of trustees for several years. It was a particularly intentional board, and in talking about our board experience one day, the people on it agreed. Serving on the board of trustees was a spiritual experience, an experience of transcendence beyond ourselves. Third story, my youngest son, Jake, was born when I was at seminary. And he grew up in his young years when I was balancing family and work and part-time school and community. One day, there was an event at my seminary that he could attend with me. He was about three years old, and he was very excited to go visit mommy's school. He loved attending nursery school, and he knew I liked my school. So we got in the car, and then he asked me, Do you get to be line leader at your school? (laughs) He said, and he continued, this is how your school should do it. We have a list of who is in the class. Every day somebody gets to be line leader and somebody gets to be door opener. We all take turns and we all get a chance. Fourth story. The first time I gave a version of this talk at an ethical society, much earlier version, the first person in the feedback session said, I don't know why you chose to talk about leadership. In ethical culture, the whole point is to do away with leadership. Some very different images of leadership there. From no, we're not leaders, to leadership is a spiritual experience, to everyone takes turns and we all get a chance, and back to leadership is a bad thing. So what is leadership? This aspect of group life that seems to be present in all human groups. Why do good progressive people often have something against leadership? And what would good progressive people want in leadership? The old models of leadership were often kind of a military image, with generals at the top and commanders, well, commanding, giving orders. Now, I admit, even the military has learned, but essentially that is the image most people have of leadership. The success of a leader depended in that traditional model on how well the leader got the group to do what the leader wanted the group to do. And sometimes what was happening was done for the group if the leader was beneficent, uh, but still it was power from above, power over the group. And that's the old image of leadership that many have rejected. And why is this a model that many of us have rejected and sometimes rejected that whole idea of leadership? Power in that model of leadership is exercised by the few in order to dominate the rest. The power over people is the power to oppress. Oppress is literally to press down from above. Whether leaders exercise that power purposefully or the power is not acknowledged. 
Max Weber, the sociologist, defined power this way in the 19th century. Power is the probability that one actor in a social relationship will be in a position to carry out his own will despite resistance, regardless of the basis on which this probability rests. Well, in my younger years, both the black power movement and the feminist movement challenged this power over oppression model, challenged the privileges that came with power and the power that came with privilege. The goal, many once said, was to have leaderless groups. Those, it was said, would be more humanistic. Hierarchy in leadership too often implies that those at the top not only have more power, but also are more valued and are rewarded more. But hierarchy, if value and reward and coercive power are removed, is also sometimes a foundation for efficiency. Another quick story. Twice I've been in congregations where in the middle of a Sunday program, someone slid off their chair unconscious. One of those times was actually here in this room, and I was a participant that morning when the American Ethical Union was holding its annual assembly. I was sitting about three seats away from the man, and this society was hosting here the morning platform meeting for the assembly. The other time, which I will tell you a bit more about, I was the speaker, and actually I was telling a joke at the moment it happened, just short of the punchline. <laughs> In both cases, people who knew what they were doing responded quickly. Some told others to move away from the person, giving them air. Someone else called for an ambulance. In that other case, a member who was a nurse rushed up to the person and then gave directions to others about getting wet cloths. That congregation was in a rural area, so someone knew to go to the edge of the property and stand there at the road to help guide the ambulance to the right place. And someone else had the presence of mind to check their time on the watch, so that when we were all panicking because it had been an eternity since the ambulance was called, he could say, "Um, it's only been two minutes. Those were exercises in leaderful groups, not leaderless groups. And it points to a different meaning of power and a different meaning of leadership. That traditional meaning of power, as reflected in Max Weber's demonstration, is about one of three kinds of power. Either force or coercion, in which influence is by physical intimidation or threat. It can be domination, in which the authority of a position allows someone to to influence others explicitly by commanding them or requesting and expecting to be followed. And the third kind of coercive power is manipulation, in which influence happens without explicit um, knowledge about what the leader is asking. But the meaning of power has other uh, ideas in it. In primal cultures, power is mana, it's called in one culture, power resides in physical places and things, and human beings try to get access to that power. And then as religions get more complex, so does the human idea about how to, how to control that power, and more complex and powerful gods get invented to be manipulated to get them on your side. But let's look at those other meanings of power. I read his opening words this morning, a quote from Mary Parker Follett about power with versus power over. How many of you know who Mary Parker Follett is? 
Wow, a couple of you know. (laughs) Mary Parker Follett was a volunteer in a settlement house movement during the progressive era at the beginning of the 20th century. She was also a member of a group of several other women volunteers in settlement houses in Boston. One of the others in her group was Mrs. Louis Brandeis, wife of the future Supreme Court Justice, and who was also the sister of the wife of Felix Adler. Her circle was somewhat similar to many of those centered around the New York ethical movement. Well, weekly the women met and pondered about what they were learning from their experience as volunteers. Out of these meetings, Mary Parker Follett wrote a couple of books on management in organizations based on what she had learned in working with groups in the volunteer volunteer world of the settlement house. These books went on to influence the whole field of management development, with the more famous Peter Drucker calling her his muse and crediting her with his most famous people management ideas. It is Mary Parker Follett who first developed, as far as I can see, the idea of those two views of power, power over being the traditional model and power with being the progressive model that she promoted and which has become embedded in much of organizational theory today. Power, after all, is essentially a relationship, and so is leadership. Power can be seen as making real what is only potential. Coercive power through coercion or shared power through cooperation. Power can be an exercise in human freedom. A Unitarian religious writer and teacher, James Luther Adams, also adopted the power over power with model, although he seems not to know who came up with that language. And he used it to talk about religion and politics. He wrote, the power to reject or disregard power is itself an expression of power as human freedom. Rian Eisler is another name you may be more likely to know, and she's perhaps the most well-known of those who have adopted this model of power over versus power with. She calls it dominator or partnership models of leadership and organization. Well, underneath it all, power is not just the power to get someone else to do what you want. Power is the ability of a person to accomplish something, to make a choice, to make real what was only potential. The insight of Mary Parker Follett and others who later adopted the model, usually without knowing who came up with it, is that power with actually increases the total power in a group. When you share power such that everyone gets power and exercises it, there's actually more total power in the group. Power over diminishes the total power of a group. The most powerful organizations and groups are those that share power. In the example of the man who slid off his seat while I was speaking, the power of that whole group to respond to the situation was increased because so many different people exercised leadership. Yes, I was the one standing up in front, as I am right now, but I was not the only person with power. I did use that power at that moment of being up front to suggest that the people not involved in the process move to the fellowship room, and that they did. But I didn't order anyone to move their chairs to give the man space. I didn't order anyone to attend to him. I didn't order anyone to call the ambulance. We were a leaderful group that day, 
and I was glowing with joy that I was part of a community that understood at a deep level that leadership is shared with all of us. Felix Adler called that spiritual democracy. Felix, the leader of the first ethical society, wrote about spiritual democracy as a key goal in the kind of ethics that our movement wants to cultivate. Spiritual democracy to imply that it's not just about who votes or who they elect, and it's not just about dividing the material goods of the society. In his time, spiritual was used as a word to just mean the opposite of material, not something about spirits. Well, about the human spirit, democracy in which everyone participates and is a real part of the group, of the community, of the nation, of the world. That's what spiritual democracy is about. Jane Addams, the settlement house leader who was a contemporary of Adler and a friend of his and also a friend of such other ethical society members as Felix, as um, Alice Goldmark Brandeis, John Lovejoy Elliott, Lillian Wald, and Mary Parker Follett. She wrote about the same idea about democracy as the basis of social ethics. She, like Felix Adler, looked at the external and internal reasons for groups existing. The external purposes are the goals that are obvious of what a group is for. Families provide a home and sustenance for members of the family and perhaps raise children and educate them. A work group produces a good or a service. A political group elects representatives to create a government compatible with the group's values. But there's also, both Felix Adler and Jane Addams taught, an internal purpose to every group, the growth and development of the people within them, to elicit the best in each person. Adler and Adams both taught that external and internal purposes are equally valid, and we need to pay attention to both of them. Obviously, from that follows the idea that power over tends to focus on how a hierarchical leader can bring out the best of the external goals and pretty much ignores the internal purpose of the group. Power with enables the internal purpose of the group to be a focus how to bring out the best in each individual within the group as a person. But does power with ignore the external purpose or delay it and make it more difficult? Well, sometimes it does seem so. Adler wrote essentially that nevertheless, even if it does delay, both are important and must be attended to if we want to be ethical. Jane Addams, on the other hand, wrote even more elegantly that when everyone in a group participates in a decision, the external purpose is also more likely to be a creative solution, to be the best. Democracy was not just about who got to vote. It was for Adams about who participated at every level of every kind of decision-making. And even beyond that, for Jane Adams, democracy was about groups considering who matters in the decision and including them as much as possible in the decision-making process for better outcomes for both external and internal purposes of the group. How the potential to fulfill the group's external purpose could best be made real and the internal purpose of the group, how the potential worth of every person in the group could be actualized, how the boundaries of the group could be extended to include more people who matter, who were affected by the decisions. 
And this is about leadership, because leadership is organized power. The power with model, the participatory or partnership model, is one in which everyone works together to get shared external and internal goals met, and which is more likely to be creative and effective. There is value in specialization in organizations. It adds efficiency often. Not hierarchy, where it's about who has the power to force others, who is more valuable, who gets the most rewards, but specialization. If the fire alarm were to go off right now, I, as a sometime visitor, would want someone to tell me exactly where I need to go right now. (laughs) I don't want to have a meeting and come to a consensus about it. (laughs) If someone collapses in the middle of a platform, we don't all have to have a meeting to decide who calls the ambulance. We can listen to a speaker present ideas, graciously listening to someone like me, not all talking at once, and then everyone takes those ideas and considers whether they're worth using, trying them out, and adapting them. There's a value in specialization, but there are also different specializations within leadership. We think of the person up front as the leader, but there are lots of ways to exercise leadership. One of my other favorite writers on leadership, a woman named Starhawk, described five types of leadership every group needs. Number one, the view from above, the overview of the group's task and process. This is the one we often think of first when we think about leaders. The second kind, she said, is the view from underneath, as she described it, the attention to the group's feelings and emotions. A third type of leadership is establishing and guarding the group's boundaries, making sure that the group's identity is protected. And the fourth one is helping the group expand, including more people and making everyone feel welcome. And the fifth kind of leadership, and this is one we don't often talk about, is weaving all the connections in the group. You can see that some of those kinds of leadership are sometimes intention. Some are better leaders at guarding boundaries, and some are better leaders at welcoming. Some are better at calling the ambulance, and some are better at getting the coffee going. Some are line leaders, and some open doors, and it's healthy to have some rotation in those jobs. Some are willing to be in a crowd of 400,000 leaders on climate change, or hold signs on a busy road in rush hour. There are all kinds of leadership. A professional leader is unlikely to do equally well in all those leadership areas. But a professional leader needs to be the person paying attention to that they are all being done, being sure that they're all being done well, often by others. And everyone who does any of those jobs is also a leader. The job of a professional leader, to me at its core, is to help others find their leadership and to participate in their learning and growing within that leadership. You know, professionals in many fields of life aren't people who are somehow better than the rest of us, just more prepared, better trained, and expected to pay more focused attention. When I had a major health scare four years ago, I went to doctors. (laughs) I had information, they had knowledge and skill, and together we solved the problem. I chose medical professionals then and I choose them now who respect me as an individual and who want me as an active participant in the process, 
not, not medical professionals who tell me what to do without listening. And I have experienced some of those in my life as well. I imagine some of you have. Similarly, I react better when I'm going in an, through an educational course um, if my ideas are part of the learning, not just the ideas coming from the teacher. And I often, I admit, in courses, learn at least as much from fellow students as I do from the teacher. But I love it when the teacher pays attention to facilitating that shared learning and makes it happen. And I seek out teachers who do that. And so the same, as I think, is true in leaderful ethical societies. We also need chairpersons of committees who will facilitate shared leadership on those committees. We need boards that facilitate shared leadership within the whole congregation. And we need professional leaders, here with a capital L, who make ethical culture leadership their vocational focus. The purpose of lay and professional leaders in an ethical society is, as in any organization, both about internal and external goals. But in a community like this, the internal goals of spiritual democracy, well, those actually become the external goals as well. So we're kind of um, different than a lot of organizations that way. Bringing out the best is part of what we know we're about. Sure, we have intermediate external goals as well. Um, we need to run an effective annual pledge drive so that there are funds to make the community's dreams possible. We don't exist in order to have pledge drives. Pledge drives make bringing out the best possible. We need to put out chairs for people to sit in. We need to answer phone calls. We need to welcome new people and help them understand whether this is a community they want to be part of. We need to organize the weekly platform meeting in the Sunday school, even get materials ready for the children to use, all with one primary goal in mind, to bring out the best in each other and thereby in ourselves. And so the professional leader's task is often to be a professional at what others do on a volunteer basis, often very well. There's nothing that I do as an ethical culture leader that somebody else can't do as well. But as with any professional, our job includes training, in this case in a wide variety of skills and knowledge, as the leader has to be a kind of renaissance person to pay attention to all the kinds of leadership. And our job also includes support from others in the profession to keep us learning and growing. But mostly it's about attention and focus. A person who inspired me on this path once said that the job of an ethical culture leader or a minister is to be a human being, professionally, intentionally, and in public. That's certainly one part of it, and professional leaders also respond well to those who try to bring out our best, rather than expect that we're always supposed to be able to do everything all the time. But training support and a different level of focus for the professional is the key. And that's why organizations like this community thrive more when there are people who specialize in that work, and especially when those people who specialize understand that the main underlying task of professional leadership is to bring out the potential leadership in every member of the community. A professional ethical leader cannot do this alone and would not be a good leader if they tried just as the professional manager who does everything themselves is actually making themselves unnecessary. So I'd ask that you think today of the many different ways in which you as a person 
are already a leader, both in this community and other places, and how through your relations of leadership, you can bring out the best, the uniqueness, and the worth in everyone you work with. How you might take on some new task of leadership within this group, within some other group to which you belong, to use that role to bring out the leadership of others, and about what support you need from other leaders, including the professional leadership, so that in bringing out the best in others, you can bring out the best in yourself.